Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast from UNH Cooperative Extension. On today's show, we pivot to protecting our yard and garden from nuisance wildlife. We'll explore how to manage troublesome critters and also what not to do and why. This episode is a bit lengthy, but we just couldn't bear to cut it down because it's an important topic worth devoting the time for. Whether you listen all at once or in chunks, you'll walk away with ideas on how to effectively control any nuisance wildlife challenge you face. There's also some great conversation about how we can support wildlife on our properties without inviting damage to our yards and gardens. Let's get into it. Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnitz, joined as always by horticulturist and UNH Extension field specialist Emma Erler. We're shifting just a bit from how to grow plants to an episode all about how to protect our plants from animals all too eager to help themselves to the parts of the yard where we just have to draw the line. Let's start broad on why we're talking about nuisance wildlife. I guess to put it really plainly, why can wildlife be a nuisance? For me and for many Granite Staters, that's one of our favorite things about living in New Hampshire is all the wildlife around us. And as gardeners, we also occasionally have moments uh, where we deviate from that love of wildlife. We've all had those moments. Um, But tell us about broadly speaking, some of the reasons why wildlife can be a nuisance. In the garden, wildlife are usually a problem because they're eating something that we have in the landscape. When we're talking about the vegetable garden, that could mean actually eating the produce that you have and most frustratingly eating fruits when we're growing those. I I think a lot of people have probably had a chipmunk or something steal a tomato from them from their vegetable garden before. In the ornamental landscape, this often means browsing on herbaceous foliage during the summer or in the winter months, chewing the bark off of trees and shrubs. And outside of actually damaging plants, wildlife can have an impact too on on structures and uh, in terms of uh, the lawn or the, the playing surfaces we have in our yards, a lot of animals burrow. So it could be digging up the lawn or creating large holes, which are a hazard to people and pets. And I know everyone listening is thinking of very specific examples, maybe from last year or recent years of a particular animal that caused an issue that just made your blood boil. Uh, And we're going to get to specific animals and specific issues. But Emma, I have some general questions that I think are really important. And the first one relating to my first question is how can we protect our gardens and other examples you talked about, our lawns, our homes, our trees and shrubs, while still supporting wildlife on our properties at large? I guess for me, that starts with deciding what your goals are. If you really want to support wildlife in your landscape, a lot of times that means bringing in plants that they specifically use Plants that produce fruits that birds and small mammals enjoy, perhaps plants that are particularly important for pollinators for their uh, younger life cycles. Um, But, you know, if you're trying to, let's say, have 
the most perfect landscape possible where you don't want to see a single leaf chewed on, a single branch damaged, or if you're growing a vegetable garden where you're actually trying to produce your own food and you're not trying to feed wildlife, then there can be an issue, of course. So it's it's tough, right, to have a bit of both. I think what a lot of people end up doing is deciding what their threshold is. Like it might be okay if a couple berries disappear, but you still want to have some for yourself. Well, and for me, a few examples come to mind. So for one thing, let's say you're growing apples and you're really tired of the squirrels or deer or whatever are an issue for your apple tree, eating the apples off your tree. So you plant a crab apple, hopefully a disease resistant crab apple, and you protect your apple trees in some way and make it really easy and appealing for the animals to enjoy the apples from your crab apple instead and meanwhile, the crab apple's still acting as a pollinizer for your apple trees, so there can be potential uh, win-win solutions. Um, the other thing is just considering maybe certain parts of the yard being kind of off-limits for animals, but then the majority of the yard being for them. Uh, so you might think of some parts of your yard as where you're really landscaping for wildlife, whether it is pollinators uh, or Uh, other types of animals, and then some parts of your garden you're going to really fortify and do the best you can to keep them out. The other thing that comes to mind, and I think this is going to be relevant in a variety of ways as we talk, but supporting predators that provide natural biological control for the animals that are causing issues for you. Most of these predators are not going to be damaging your garden, right? Trying to think of an example, maybe a coyote um, could be an occasional pest, I suppose, but normally not. The exception, I guess, is if you're keeping backyard livestock, then the relationship you have to predators is more complicated. But if you're just growing crops, those animals are going to eat animals that you don't want in your garden. So you want to do everything you can for them. But Again, that leads into my next question, which is the use of products that are designed to kill animals, example being rodenticides, which are really common. And every store you go to that has garden supplies is going to sell rodenticides. They come in a variety of forms. Uh, So I'm wondering, is there a safe way to use rodenticides? Do you recommend them as part of a gardener's approach to controlling pests? in the landscape rodenticides it's a they're a tricky subject honestly because there's a number of different active ingredients that go into these products and the toxicity that they have to non-target wildlife varies dramatically so some rodenticides the active ingredients are very toxic to mammals they might not be quite as harmful to birds Um, some are pretty toxic all the way across the board And of course, a concern anytime you're using one of these poisons, because that's exactly what they are, you are potentially looking at an issue where you are harming the the animal that comes next in the food chain, right? So if if you're, let's say, putting down um, a poison for voles or for mice, either in or around your house, if another animal eats that poisoned mouse, that poisoned vole, there's a chance that that animal is going to be injured and worst case scenario killed. And this is a a real concern, especially when we're talking about 
uh, using baits outdoors where there's even a greater chance that a non-target animal is going to come across that poison directly. So that's something I think about. Definitely using using poison, I think, for a lot of people feels like, I don't know, the, the easiest option because it's more or less out of sight, out of mind. This animal comes and feeds on that bait and then it dies someplace out of sight. Now, if that's outside, it seems like the problem's been totally managed. If if it happens indoors, then you're dealing with, you know, a, a smelly dead animal somewhere in your home. But regardless, uh, that can definitely be an issue. And I have to say, I, I'm not aware of any rodenticides, any poison that's not going to have, you know, any impact on another animal that eats it accidentally or that eats that poison animal. Like I said, some are more poisonous than others. A lot of it depends on dose with how much is actually consumed. But definitely be concerned if you have pets around, be worried about harming other wildlife. And of course, if you have kids too, some of these products are peanut butter flavored or uh, other, you know, flavors that might be or packaging that might be attractive to um, children as well. So not certainly not my first choice. Yeah. And I just think if you poison a vole and a hawk eats that vole and dies as a result, how many voles would that hawk have eaten for you if it hadn't been poisoned? So you're sure. really working against yourself. Oh, absolutely. And I know there there are certain scenarios where rodenticides are appropriate. I mean, I think sometimes with a large farm operation, it, it might not be reasonable to trap all these animals. But at a very small homeowner scale, I, I don't I often don't think that the, the poison is what we need to go for. Yeah. But like I said, there, there's a time and a place. But for most of us with our, our backyard garden, I, I don't think they're necessary. And an alternative that I hear often brought up by gardeners is mothballs, which I think are thought of as not being a poison. They're thought of as kind of being an innocuous substance that you stick down the burrow of an animal and it takes care of your issue. But that's not my perspective. What do you think about mothballs? Mothballs are actually an insecticide. So mothballs release a, a toxic gas which will take care of insects if you're putting that mothball in an, in an enclosed chest or something like that to preserve your clothing. They are not intended for use um, to deter other animals. They're certainly not meant to be used outside. Uh, and they, they are toxic. I mean, if a mothball is, is you know, eaten by a non-target animal, um, could be issues there. They're not labeled for that use. Like I said, uh, mothball is does actually contain insecticide, and it's it's considered pesticide. They're not intended for <laughs> to be used um, outdoors, being um, tucked down animal burrows, and it's not not a, a route I would go. And yet another technique that people bring up, and I think people uh, <laughs> they think they're doing the right thing, um, and again, it's. Uh, to some extent, an out of sight, out of mind thing, uh, but live trapping, where you use, for example, just to name one brand, to have a heart trap, and you're able to bait that trap and capture that animal and bring it miles down the road to a field where you're imagining it will go on to live a happy life without harming your crops anymore. But again, it sounds better than it is, right? 
Most definitely. I think one of the biggest issues with live trapping is that it's probably not quite as humane as we think it's going to be. Um, unless you're checking the trap constantly, you've got an animal that's stuck in this cage and it's really cold, it's really hot, doesn't have any water. Uh, of course, another problem there too um, that I've seen happen fairly often is sometimes animals get fairly beat up inside of traps when they're trying to escape. And of course, when you actually go to move that animal, you're moving it outside of its its own territory. So now you're dumping it into potentially the territory of another individual. So it's already going to be in conflict potentially with other with other individuals of its species. It's going to be totally disoriented. And uh, that, that I mean, the whole process of being moved in general is really stressful on that animal. And if it does survive this ordeal... More often than not, they try really, really hard to make it home. So they get hit by cars, uh, become a nuisance on somebody else's property. I mean, it's it's typically not a great scenario for that animal. So, you know, it, it seems like a, a really good thing for, I think, a, a lot of uh, homeowners that are having conflicts with wildlife. Um, but more often than not, it's it's not the best thing for that animal. And another thing I should mention, too, is that if you are going to move an animal someplace else, you need to have permission from the landowner uh, where you're going to be releasing that animal. Um, and it's it's not OK to just drop an animal off in any other location, um, even if it's a public park. You, you need to get permission to do that. And yet another option. I, I don't really have issues with this option aside from efficacy but the use of various repellents and my understanding is some are going to be more effective than others and i think there are a lot of products that are for sale that just aren't necessarily effective and we don't want people to waste money on products that don't work uh, but what are your thoughts on repellents in general and then specifically what types of repellents would you consider to be the most effective? When it comes to repellents, I, I think they work best when you don't have super high animal pressure, meaning there isn't a huge population and there's plenty of food around for the animal to eat, you know, things that aren't your garden plants. There are a couple different types of repellents. The, I mean, the two main categories are taste repellents and smell repellents. Taste repellents, of course, require the animal to actually eat the plant in order to be uh, turned away from it, driven away from it. A lot of times uh, capsaicin, so like hot pepper is used. You know, I, I don't see these working all that well. Like I said, maybe if there are plenty of other things for that animal to eat, having a little bit of a, a spicy meal, you know, will turn them off from that particular plant. But in a lot of cases, it seems like animals just, I don't know, get a taste for the hot pepper or they're hungry enough that it doesn't matter. The other option is a smell repellent. And these kind of fall into a couple different camps, too. So there are botanicals, so like garlic oil or let's say rosemary oil. People use these to put on plants um, to either mask the scent of them or to make them unattractive. Probably what's more effective is actually using something that triggers a fear response in the animal. So that's like predator urines putrescent egg solids, sometimes like slaughterhouse waste. And there's there's a lot of, you know, different formulations out there with different products. Those tend to work better. But again, you know, these these work best if there's plenty of other food around for the animal to eat. If animals are really hungry and desperate, 
it's probably not going to matter whether you put that repellent on or not. And with repellents, you do need to reapply. Rain is going to diminish their effectiveness and just time as well. So you have to you have to keep applying them. Some of them, those ones that work really well that are, let's say, made out of rotten eggs. Uh, yeah, they're not pleasant for you either. Well, and a lot of people are thinking about repellents specifically for deer and Another strategy for managing deer are using deer-resistant landscaping, deer-resistant plants. Uh, I'm wondering, one, is is there anything to the use of deer-resistant plants? Is that going to keep deer away in general or just keep deer from feeding on that particular plant? Uh, and are there plants that are resistant to other types of wildlife too? And then, of course, plants that are particularly appealing to wildlife. Typically, when you when you're talking about deer resistant plants, it means the animal or the the deer won't feed on that particular plant. I'm not really aware of any plants that just by their proximity will keep deer totally away from the garden. In general, there'll be a couple plants that deer just really don't prefer. They typically don't feed on unless they're desperate. But if there's something else nearby that they do like. They will feed on that heavily. And there's definitely, you know, with other wildlife too, there there are certainly things that plants that they prefer, um, plants they tend to leave alone. I can th- definitely think of you know, certain trees and shrubs, let's say, that voles tend to attack and, and others where I've seldom seen damage. And I, I would guess that the, um, you know, sa- same would go for for squirrels, um, you know, for woodchucks. Every, everybody's got favorites, right? Things that they prefer. The, the thing that's kind of interesting with deer, I think, in particular, is that they are quite picky when food is in abundance. So when there's plenty of natural food or let's say, you know, your neighbor has a nice garden that's not protected at all, they will leave certain plants alone. But when they get really, really desperate, the number of things that they'll eat grows wider. So they'll, they will eventually browse on some of those plants that at one point were deemed totally deer proof. But if they're hungry enough, they, they will eventually eat those too. Since we're talking deer, I guess, you know, I can... Certainly, would it be helpful if I listed a, a couple plants that deer really like and some they don't? Yeah, I, I think that would be helpful. And I must say, you saying there are plants that various other animals like and don't like feels like a tease. And I'm, I know there's not time really to go through every plant that every animal likes and doesn't like, but I'm wondering just generally how you would go about finding that information. There are definitely lists online of plants that our deer really like uh, versus plants that deer don't like. A lot of times, in terms of like herbaceous plants, so let's just say the vegetable garden, pretty much everything in the vegetable garden, wildlife will enjoy. So we're almost always talking about fencing or something to keep animals out with the vegetable garden. But in in an ornamental setting, one plant group that we're always thinking about in terms of wildlife preference are the bulbs. So if you like to plant spring blooming bulbs, you're probably going to want to think about which ones animals prefer, which ones they don't. By and large, chipmunks, squirrels, voles, even deer will completely ignore daffodils, but they love, love, love tulips. They will 
mm, bother crocus occasionally, not always, but they'll pretty much always leave an ornamental onion alone. A few others you might mix in there. Glory of the Snow, China Doxa usually gets ignored by animals. Same with Siberian Squill. Don't have to worry about that. You might have some issues, you know, with perhaps some of the, the native uh, bulbs like Claytonia, which are edible for people too. So if you are definitely having issues with wildlife, I'd say stay away from the tulips. Go with daffodils instead. Usually rodents, um, rabbits, and deer tend to be the biggest issue in landscape plantings in over the winter months when there aren't a lot of food sources available. So they will feed heavily on, on trees and shrubs. They're are definitely um, preferences that these animals have. So if we're talking about voles, they really like fruit trees. So keep that in mind. They also really seem to enjoy juniper for whatever reason. Juniper often gets chewed up by voles over the winter. With deer, uh, deer absolutely love you. They really like hollies for some reason. And they will often feed on apple and rhododendron. They're much less likely to, to bother pines. I've rarely seen them bother oaks. Oh, the other one I mentioned, I should mention that they really like is arborvitae. Um, and of course, when herbaceous plants are growing during the summer too, I think most people are probably familiar with the fact that deer love, love, love hostas. So if you have a lot of deer around, you're probably not going to have a lot of luck with hosta. Okay, thanks for giving some examples, and I know there are many more, but that gives everyone a taste for uh, some of those dynamics, and you can seek out more information online. Uh, something that this leads to, though, for me, is how do you actually identify the animal that's causing issues? You know, I, I know that I've often seen damage before I've seen the animal and can actually identify the culprit. First of all, some animals are nocturnal or doing their damage at night. Even for animals that are doing damage during the day, they typically don't like to be seen because that makes them vulnerable to predators. Obviously, deer, somewhat of an exception to that. And woodchucks seem to be somewhat of an exception. They seem to not really care about being seen, at least in my perspective. They just kind of waddle around uh, like they have no cares in the world, which I am quite jealous of. Seems like a, a a woodchuck with proximity to a garden. That that's as good as it gets. Um, but what what tips do you have generally for identifying what wildlife is causing a particular issue from looking at the damage? Yeah, it's all about looking for signs. So that's looking at you know how the animal actually bit off the plant tissue or how it chewed on it. And if you're lucky, you might actually find bits of hair or droppings left behind by the critter too. Might as well just go over some of the basics here. If we're looking at damage, let's say to a woody plant, usually springtime is when we're seeing damage that happened over the winter. If you're seeing some sort of, of chewing that happened to the the bark of the tree you're going to want to look at the actual you know pattern of those chewing marks if they're fairly rough and irregular going all around the the base of the trunk you are probably looking at vole damage voles tend to chew in every every direction there's different size chunks or peelings taken away you're probably not going to see droppings either from a vole whereas if it's a bunny the chewing tends to be a, a little bit more uniform, cleaner, and they often nip 
the ends of branches off very cleanly at a 45 degree angle. And if you have rabbits feeding in the area, you will almost certainly see their very round droppings in the vicinity of your plant. If it's a deer, rabbits and deer will prune off the ends of branches. If it's a deer, typically the the tissue looks like it's been roughly cut. So there might be some strings of bark left over. It just kind of looks like it was broken or hacked off. Look for that. And of course, be looking for deer pellets too. That you... If deer have been active in your yard, typically there will be lots of droppings around. And some of it's just going to be seasonality too, right? So I just listed a a bunch of animals that are active year-round, so in the winter months. But if you're looking at damage, let's say, to your vegetable garden in the middle of the summer, you might just be thinking about, you know, who else might be active. So woodchucks become a possibility once things warm up in the spring and are active all season. And deer, again, with herbaceous plants are going to be chewing on stuff so that it, it just looks roughly cut. And one kind of interesting issue I've run into in the vegetable garden, sometimes you see a vegetable kind of cut at the base. And not only could that be from an animal, it could be from cutworm. How do you tell the difference between Uh, cutworm damage and damage from an animal. Yeah, that's a tough one, right? Typically when a cutworm cuts off the top of a plant, the top of that plant is going to be laying there on the soil next to the cut stem. Whereas if an animal bit it off, that's going to be long gone because they ate the tender growth on the top of that stem. Of course, there's always exceptions, but that's probably what I'd be thinking. If the tops of all all my bean plants, let's say, are, are laying there, Probably cutworms. Otherwise, if they're all missing, I'd say some other wildlife species came through. I was just looking at a picture earlier today that you set me straight on. I was thinking that bark peeling off of a tree, to me, looked like it might have been from an animal. And you pointed out that there really wasn't any evidence of animal damage there and that it was just more an issue with the health of the tree. Uh, So that's another thing is just because something is damaged doesn't mean that an animal caused it. Very good point. Particularly, I think, on on trees and shrubs, when bark starts falling off of things, you might immediately be thinking that an animal did it. But sometimes there's damage from climactic conditions. So a a hard freeze, um, winter winds, you know, who knows? Uh, But definitely be looking for signs of, of teeth marks. I think it was last summer, when there were a lot of branches falling out of oak trees, sometimes it was from maybe squirrels, but sometimes it was from an insect, right? Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, there was an um, insect called a twig pruner that was clipping uh, the ends off of oak, oak branches. But squirrels will do that too sometimes. They'll clip branches out of trees. So that really relies on on your uh, close observational skills. If you're seeing a lot of squirrel activity in a particular tree, could be a squirrel. Uh, if you're not, could be could be an insect thing. Okay, I want to actually take a little break and bring in a featured question that has nothing to do with this conversation, but we really appreciate people reaching out to us by email at gsg.pod at unh.edu. And your featured question or featured plant rather in the last episode was on garlic. And we got a great question from Larry about growing garlic. 
Uh, so Larry asks, uh, he planted garlic last fall and mulched it with straw, which is great. Uh, the straw has packed down over the winter, and he now sees green garlic plants pushing through it. Also great. He's wondering if he should throw some more mulch on to protect that garlic or simply leave it be. And I would just add to Larry's question, what else should he be doing for that garlic? At this point in the season, so let's see, today is April 7th, so be beginning of April. Seeing garlic coming up is something I'd be excited about. It isn't something I'd be worrying about. The big reason you're putting that mulch over the garlic when you plant it in the fall is actually just to give it some extra protection to uh, protect those bulbs for, from it, it getting too, too cold over the winter months. There's really no need to put any more mulch on at this point. I am very hopeful that we don't have any more deep, deep freezes ahead of us, that we aren't expecting any more snow. Worst case scenario, if we get some bad weather at this point, those those leaf tips might get a little bit damaged from cold. But it's not going to harm the plant overall. So having, you know, just a, a couple of inches of burned foliage is perfectly fine. And that really goes for any bulb, not just garlic. So as long as uh, the mulch isn't too thick in the spring and you're, you're seeing some of that new growth coming up, no need to put any more mulch down. Um, I would keep some mulch in place, though, because that's going to help suppress weeds as time goes on. In terms of, you know, what else you're doing going forward... I have a feeling that watering is going to be a concern again this year. Uh, it's already been a pretty dry season or dry spring. So be paying attention to how much water we've got gotten. Uh, you might need to be irrigating your garden, irrigating your garlic. Garlic definitely likes a, a consistently moist soil. Not wet, but moist. Be thinking about watering. If you didn't put any fertilizer down in the fall when you planted your garlic, you might be thinking about fertilizing too. Um, and ideally, that's going to go alongside with soil test results. Well, and I, I guess I would just add a little caveat to that. It really depends on whether you used a slow-release fertilizer in the fall. That might still be working for you in the spring. If you use something that wasn't slow-release, uh, I know that we might recommend using a quick-acting liquid fertilizer once the garlic starts to grow in the spring to give it a little boost. Yeah, so hopefully you took notes about what you what you did in your garden in the fall, and uh, you can you can go from there. But yeah, once, once you see probably just a little bit more growth and things really start to warm up, it might be helpful to use that fertilizer that Nate mentioned. Okay, well, thanks, Larry, for, for the question, and keep them coming. We're going to feature your questions uh, on every episode of the podcast. It's kind of a controversial issue, Emma, is feeding wildlife. Uh, on one hand, feeding wildlife is, is really exciting. Everything from bird feeding uh, to putting out food for, for deer uh, or so many things that people like to do for the thrill of seeing wildlife in their backyard, as well as thinking that they're helping, right? Giving animals food that they need. But there's, I think, multiple reasons why you might think twice. Uh, for one thing, you might be bringing wildlife to your yard that could become a nuisance, but there are other reasons too, right? Yeah, one thing I think of right off the bat is the potential for disease transmission. When you were bringing a whole lot of animals together, potentially in a, a density that you wouldn't otherwise see, 
disease can always be a concern. You might also be bringing in animals that you weren't intending to feed that can become a nuisance. So a lot of times with bird feeders, you might end up with rodent issues with that spilled seed on the ground. You know, even if you have the best possible bird feeders that that squirrels or or rats can't access, there's still going to be spilled feed on the ground and uh, there's potential for issues there. And then, you know, there's there's always the thought that it might not be the best thing for animals too to always be in close contact with people in terms of, you know, getting too used to people, of, of getting too tame and becoming a nuisance. And, uh, you know, particularly, let's say with wildlife like bears, it's a bad thing for a bear if it gets used to being close to people, if it gets used to eating a food source that, that people are leaving out. And um, there are some legal restrictions, right, in terms of what you can and can't do dealing with nuisance wildlife. Can you just briefly go over those so we're covering our bases there? Yeah, so there there are definitely uh, certain species that are protected in some way, or there might be a particular season so um, of when it's okay to harvest said animals. Uh, I think this particularly comes into play if you're if you're trapping um, or if you're shooting. I would say, you know, if you have any sort of nuisance wildlife issue, you know, rather than just go out and, and try to take care of it on your own, I think it makes a lot of sense to either get in touch with um, your local fish and game officer or uh, contact USDA Wildlife Services. Um, USDA Wildlife Services is specifically chartered with helping deal with nuisance wildlife. And of course, they're, they're dealing with farm scale issues, but they'll also give homeowners advice as well and let you know exactly what it's okay to do, what it's okay not to do, probably give you tips on what the most humane option is. You know, in, in some cases, maybe actually able to... Um, you know, help you out more substantially with, um, you know, loaning fencing or something of the sort. So get in touch, see what the advice is before you get yourself into trouble. Well, and you mentioned protected species. Uh, birds certainly come to mind there. Yeah, you can't can't be out just taking out birds, <laughs> even if they are a nuisance. I think my last question before we really dive into how to manage particular animals is what to do when you have humanely what's the word euthanized an animal or maybe there's a better word you can use but say you've set out traps and uh you've caught a dead animal uh what should you actually do with that it's it's not a question you might think of right up until you have to deal with it yeah absolutely and it is something you have to think about and you should be thinking about before you actually dispatch an animal there are a few different options and it, it might be worthwhile uh for you to check out what your uh, local ordinance would prefer probably the i don't know mo most acceptable method to get rid of an uh a dead animal um in particular if you ex suspect that an animal might be diseased is to bury it and if you bury it two feet down, there's a pretty good likelihood that scavengers won't come by and, and dig it up and, and bother it in any way. If you are burying it, you do want to make sure that you're right not right next door to a drinking water supply. So know where your well is and don't be burying animals anywhere near there. In some cases, if you have a lot of property, it might be okay to just leave that animal out in the open. This is as long as you didn't 
you know, kill it with some sort of, of um, poison or odenticide. In that case, you certainly don't want to leave that out. But, you know, leaving it at the edge of the woods for scavengers to find is perfectly acceptable in a lot of scenarios. And of course, uh, actually disposing of an animal in a landfill can be an acceptable option too. And typically if you do that, you do want to have it either in a, a sealed plastic bag or some sort of container. Um, just to help mitigate odor at the transfer station or with your, your local trash pickup. No matter which of these options you choose, you do want to be careful handling dead animals too, because there is always a chance for disease transmission. There are a whole lot of different diseases out there that can be spread from animals to people. So try to limit contact as much as possible. And if you do have to touch a dead animal, then wear gloves. But generally, you don't need to report a dead animal, right? Like, say you find a dead bird in your yard. Generally, no. Um, if you have reason to sp suspect that the animal might have died from a disease or if it, it just doesn't look healthy for some reason, certainly I'd, I'd report that to uh, Fish and Game or USDA Wildlife Services. But, uh, you know, for in many cases, especially if, if you uh, killed the animal yourself on your property, it, there's no need to report that. And I... <laughs> my last tip w would be if you're leaving an animal just out on your property make sure to be a good neighbor absolutely yes as i said a large property so this is on squarely on your own land where there isn't going to be any odor or any sort of nuisance issues with other predators or scavengers coming in uh, and feeding on that carcass and again i, I know i keep teasing yes we're going to get right into the animals uh, but i wonder to what extent are nuisance wildlife issues going to get worse uh, as we see uh, lands get developed? And, and maybe this is explanatory of nuisance wildlife issues maybe becoming worse, too. Uh, what are your general reflections on that? Uh, and is there even any potential link to uh, like a change in climate? I think there's definitely going to be more conflicts with people and animals as the landscape continues to become more and more fragmented. When you build a house on a, you know, a piece of land that was formerly forested or a, just an open field in New Hampshire, you're displacing a fair amount of wildlife. Those animals have to eat something. They're still trying to live. And so it's likely that they're they're going to be feeding on the plants that you're trying to grow around your house. I would absolutely expect that. You know, fewer and fewer people in New Hampshire are living really in, in true remote wilderness at this point. You know, a lot of people might just have, you know, at most maybe an acre or two. There's a lot of animals that are that are still going to be on that tract of land that still need to make a living somehow. So I, I do think those conflicts are you know, potentially getting more common will will continue to be common because they're they're just trying to make a go of it out there too. And this is why I think landscaping for wildlife is so important because if not on your property, in many cases, where else are they supposed to go? Yeah, I mean that about sums it up. Where else are they supposed to be? And I think having wildlife around is one of the best things about living in New Hampshire. Okay, switching gears. I want to spend a few minutes talking about our treasured rodents. So of the animals that often become a nuisance, which ones 
of of them are rodents uh and then we'll get into some strategies for managing them the rodent order is is pretty big and that includes mice rats voles chipmunks squirrels woodchucks and even porcupines oh i should i should say beavers too these are these are all technically rodents so you you know more or less uh we're looking at herbivores in this group or omnivores and in terms of damage typically seeing gnawing or or chewing on things rabbits are actually not rodents although they're often kind of put into that group same goes for moles moles are not rodents either Although I think they're often confused as such, probably just based on size. Well, and for moles, is that part of the reason why rodenticides typically aren't effective with them? I think in part, I think a bigger issue too is that moles aren't likely to t- eat a bait that's meant for uh, other rodents. Mm-hmm. Or I should say for rodents. So like a, a, a peanut butter flavored bait or a corn flavored bait or something is not going to be particularly interesting to a mole, which is an insect eater. So when it comes to these rodents, and there may be differences between some of them, I would think maybe the rodents of unusual size, like a beaver, (laughs) might be a little bit different than than some of the animals that uh, really come to mind first when you think of rodents like mice or voles. Uh, But what are some strategies you can use to make the areas around your gardens less appealing for them. One of the first things I think you can do, and it's probably the easiest, is try to eliminate habitat for them, particularly around areas where they tend to be very active. So around, let's say, the vegetable garden, around trees and shrubs. What this means typically is reducing cover. Voles and and mice and chipmunks too need some place where they can scurry away, where they can hide. And so for a vole, that would often mirror particularly like a meadow vole that would mean tall grasses so keeping your your lawn and garden mowed consistently is going to be really helpful if that vole is still going over to your garden uh if it is moving between trees and shrubs it's just going to be more vulnerable to predators that way where it doesn't have any place to hide and I guess also I could say with being careful with mulching too, because certain mulches can also provide good habitat for smaller rodents. So particularly on trees and shrubs, you don't want to be piling up tons of mulch right up against the trunks of those plants because it's going to give these animals a place to hide. Plus, it's not healthy for the tree or shrub to begin with. You know, I think too about how quickly some of these animals reproduce. And so when I think about setting reasonable expectations, I'm not thinking about totally eliminating an animal like a vole, but really limiting their populations, which is a challenge considering just how quickly uh, more voles are being born. Um, So how do you think about that, just setting goals for control of some of these animals? Yeah, like you said, it's definitely not going to be reasonable to think that you're going to completely eliminate these animals from the landscape. There's always going to be some about, I think, having some sort of threshold established for what can be tolerated in your landscape and what can't. So clearly, if you have fruit trees, any sort of girdling of that trunk is is not going to be tolerable, which, you know, there, there are things you can do to exclude these animals from ever reaching uh, the, the trunk. But, you know, excessive, excessive damage where plants are getting killed 
is not tolerable. But having a little bit of light feeding here and there, I think, is is something that you know, we just have to accept whether that means a few strawberries disappearing in the case of, say, chipmunks, but not every single fruit. So you still have something to harvest. I think it's fine. But if you're losing your entire harvest, if plants are dying, then that means that some sort of action needs to be taken. Yeah. And so let's talk about action and let's just go through these. So what are you looking at as far as actions that are going to be most effective for controlling vole populations? By and large, excluding them from accessing the plants that you're trying to protect is going to be important. Voles, I think, are most damaging with permanent plantings, which I would say are, are trees and shrubs. So putting some sort of tree guard around the base, particularly with young plants, is really important. So you can make these yourself out of galvanized hardware cloth, which is basically a, a metal mesh that you can pick up at any hardware store. Making a cylinder with that that's at least 18 inches high, 24 would be better given uh, snow amounts in New Hampshire. Closing that up with, with wire um, is perfect. So basically you just have this cylinder that's dug into the soil by an inch or two that surrounds the trunk of that plant and keeps that vole from being able to even access the bark of that tree. So it can't, it can't possibly girdle that tree. And there, if, if you're not up for making, you know, a guard yourself, you can purchase these commercially as well that are meant for protecting trees. And then the mowing, like I mentioned, keeping things mowed close and not over mulching is really important. And if you do need to trap bulls, uh, let's say because they're damaging your vegetable garden, uh, and it's pretty tough to keep voles out of a vegetable garden, right? Unless you're burying fencing. I'm not sure. Maybe you know how deep you'd have to do that to actually keep them out. Uh, but how, how might you trap them if you did need to? With a vole, I don't think you'd be able to exclude it very easily. If you have to trap them, I think that just a, a snap trap, like a mouse trap, is perfect for a vole. It's the right size. And uh, voles are, are fairly likely to use them if you put... If you set up the mousetrap in a, an area where they, they frequent, so where they run through, that's covered in some way. So they're more likely to go to that trap if you've put a, a board or a shingle or something over top that creates some cover that doesn't interfere with that, that lever arm that, that's actually going to kill the animal. And for voles, you know, a bait that pretty much works for everybody is peanut butter. Uh, but you can also use, I'm told, uh, a very fragrant piece of apple stuck on that trap. Would you say it's important to switch out baits, uh, to move traps? I mean, to what extent are these animals uh, getting quickly used to what you're doing? And are they able to, to figure out your strategy and evade these traps? With something like a vole... If you're catching animals in one particular location, I don't know how important it is to really be moving traps around or or baiting them with different things. You seem to just keep catching them. Um, and something to keep in mind, too, this really goes for any sort of wildlife control, uh, if you're, whether you're trapping, shooting, what have you. If you have really ideal habitat, if you get rid of one animal, it's just opening up a spot for a next for the next. So mm. <laughs> they tend to keep showing up. Uh, and in terms of locating traps, uh, I hear people talk about locating those active runways. I find that's actually not easy necessarily. 
It's not so simple. For voles anyways, it's easy to tell where those active runways are in the springtime because a lot of times Mm. there'll be little tunnels through the grass. But once we're into the growing season, you're probably not going to see anything like that. So in that case, if you have some sort of fence or a, a stone wall or something, a lot of times small animals will run along that structure. So right along the base of the fence, right along the base of the stone wall or the house or whatever, rather than run way out in the open. So setting up a trap in that location might yield a little bit more success. Uh, and another animal that's very difficult to exclude, but for a different reason, are, are chipmunks and squirrels. I mean, squirrels are incredible athletes. Uh, the, their ability to climb and jump makes it very difficult to keep them out of somewhere. And anyone growing, say, peaches knows that all too well, right? Uh, so what kind of damage are you associating generally with chipmunks and squirrels and what options do you have? They're tough, right? Because they can climb. Usually chipmunks and squirrels are bothering fruits. So, uh, or if you have a nut tree, they're bothering the nuts. But with apples, peaches, you'll be seeing big chunks or gnaw marks taken out of that fruit, which is unacceptable for most of us where we want our fruit to be untouched by a squirrel. It's going to be really hard to keep those animals out with any sort of fencing. Uh, Difficult, if not impossible, because they can climb and they can jump and they can burrow so well. So instead, you really are just relying on trapping, uh, whether that means with a, a live trap so a, a have a heart style trap or using something a little bit larger, like a, a rat trap, um, a snapping trap. Uh, and there, there are other, you know, setups too, where you, you, people use, use buckets and different setups where you can actually catch an animal um, and drown it. All sorts of different ways to go about doing this. I guess you just have to <laughs> come up with what you find acceptable. To what extent, yeah, for strawberries, maybe something like row cover or for fruit trees or, or bushes, something like bird netting, to what extent might strategies like that work? You know, I don't know how well those would work for rodents, and I've honestly never seen them applied. They work really well for birds, but when you're talking about animals that can climb really well and chew... Because mm. I, <laughs> I've certainly had issues before with with squirrels, chipmunks, mice chewing into wooden sheds, like making holes right through doors, wooden doors to get to a food source or a nesting place. So, I don't know how well that would work. Well, and then there are woodchucks, which we've already talked about a little bit. But woodchucks actually are an animal uh, that fencing can work for, particularly electric fencing, uh, per my understanding, for dedicated areas of a vegetable garden, right? So uh, how do you manage woodchucks when when they are an issue? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, if this is allowed where you live, um, shooting is often one of the more humane ways to deal with woodchucks. There are a lot of ways to trap them too, but uh, excluding them from your garden, like you mentioned, is is probably my first choice because I, I think they're cute. I think they're cool animals. That electric fence is going to work really well. Of course, it's got to be fairly close to the ground. So you need to have mm-hmm. that wire, that low, lowermost wire, probably no more than 68 inches off the ground. And you need to have multiples because remember, woodchucks can climb. They they are essentially, you know, large squirrels. You can also, if, if you really, you know, if you're worried about kids or pets, and you don't want to go the electric route. You can have a, a just a static fence that works for woodchucks too. Uh, what you're going to need to do though is have part of it buried 
So I'd say probably like a 12-inch section of mesh that bends outwards away from your garden, probably a, you know, two to three foot tall upright section. So that part that's on the bottom is going to be buried by a couple inches of soil, two to three foot upright section with an overhang of mesh, which again goes outwards. So if that animal is trying to climb up that mesh, it hits the ceiling that it would then have to, you know, climb out and around. And uh, woodchucks aren't that good at climbing. Uh, that would thwart them if there's, let's say, a, a 12 inch overhang or so. That actually sounds pretty complicated, though. I'm not sure I would be willing to devote the energy uh, to create something quite like that. Is, is that really as hard as it sounds? Um, I mean, there would definitely be some effort that would go into it. I mean, a big part of it's just going to be bending mesh. If you're looking for probably just a more general attractive option that's going to keep deer out, rabbits out too, having just that buried section of fencing is helpful. Having that mesh go outwards, go down as well as out is helpful because if that animal tries to dig, it's just going to keep hitting that barrier and hopefully is going to give up as opposed to just one piece of mesh that goes straight down into the soil. So if he's persistent enough, he just gets right underneath it and can get into the garden. How do you actually trench that? Because in a big garden, are you really just digging that out with a shovel? That Talk about a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, if if you're lucky, you might have a trenching shovel that makes it a little bit easier. But definitely a, a lot of work, for sure. Which I think is why a lot of people ultimately defer to, let, let's say, a, a 22 when they're dealing with woodchucks. Right, if they can't use electric fence. And with electric fencing, you can either go with wire strands or something like a netting. Oh, that's true. And I know that's what you're trying. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see how that works this year. Um, And another animal that can climb are porcupines. They're quite adept at climbing. I don't really think of porcupines so much as a pest of vegetables as much as fruit. So we often recommend people fence off their fruit plantings mostly for deer but is there anything you can do with that deer fencing to also keep porcupines from climbing over it um an electric fence is going to be a good option Mm. again especially if there are low wires that a porcupine is not going to be able to get underneath without getting zapped porcupines do uh i mean they they spend most of their time up in trees and when they're on the ground they're usually just moving between trees when people are having the most issues with porcupines on their fruit trees, it's because they're probably they're they're probably located near a woodland area um, or a more heavily forested area where there is more habitat for that animal. But I think electric fences is, is probably your best option, and even that's going to be tricky and kind of expensive. So I, I guess I I wouldn't go ahead and be putting all this effort into keeping porcupines out unless I know porcupines are are indeed an issue in my area. Do you think of them as being primarily nocturnal? Well, you can see them active during daytime hours, but more often than not, I think a lot of the damage occurs at night. Mm -hmm. And that makes something like shooting uh, more of a challenge with porcupines because they're operating at night. Definitely does. Yeah. I mean, I occasionally see them during daytime hours, but I think they're, they're probably a little bit more active under the cover of darkness. I guess maybe the good news with porcupines is that they're often not issues uh, and or seldom issues. They're, they're not maybe coming to your fruit trees day after day after day. It's kind of a the occasional hit. Although when they do hit, 
it's often pretty devastating. It is. Yeah. So like some of these other animals we've mentioned, they chew the bark off of the trees. So they might eat some of the leaves, but the bigger issue is that they're killing branches. Yeah. And and I know sometimes for small home orchard plantings, people may actually protect individual trees, which I think probably could help with porcupines quite a bit. Yeah. It's all, it's all a matter of scale, right? It, Mm-hmm. This whole this whole um, you know protection deal becomes a lot easier when we're talking about just a couple of trees as opposed to you know ten or more. Right. If you have two peach trees and you're actually able to keep them healthy and productive, for for a lot of people that is plenty. Totally. Yeah, more than enough. Uh, I guess moving past our rodents, uh, you mentioned how rabbits and moles are not rodents. Uh, in New Hampshire, we do have one native and endangered species right of of rabbit but for the most part because of of the endangered status of the new england cottontail we're mostly dealing uh with another rabbit and they can be quite numerous and quite an issue right yeah eastern cottontails especially in the the southern half of new hampshire particularly southern new hampshire eastern cottontails can be quite destructive in gardens and this is year round so damage over the winter months uh, as well as damage during the growing season particularly in perennial borders and uh, vegetable gardens i often hear about rabbit damage particularly in the seacoast so southeastern new hampshire Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they are an issue out west as well, but I most often hear from people in the seacoast region. Uh, what strategies will work for rabbits in your experience? I think one of the best things you can do for rabbits is using some of those tree guards, like I mentioned, for the voles. Those will work on your fruit trees as well as some of your ornamentals and your shrubs for rabbits just as well as they will for a meadow vole having those guards be a bit higher so going for two feet as opposed to let's say you know 12 inches is going to be good and having that mesh be let's say at least half an inch probably no more than half an inch in diameter so that nobody's going to be able to squeeze through otherwise for bunnies outside of protecting individual plants having a fence around your whole garden particularly let's say your vegetable garden can be really helpful and rather than have an an electric fence in that setting having just a a solid mesh or wooden fence that has been dug into the ground a little bit to prevent some burrowing is often going to be plenty to keep rabbits out i i guess an issue i've heard with rabbits too is just huge numbers them really taking over an area uh making a big mess of an area too um is there any role for trapping when it comes to rabbits um yeah you could certainly try trapping rabbits and there there are a number of different traps you can use baiting the trap is probably going to be the challenge right so having some sort of fresh food in that trap that's going to stay fresh long enough for a rabbit to go inside having that trap set up in the right location a lot of times where like eastern cottontails are the the biggest issue are probably in areas where you can't really shoot them you know in in residential areas let's say but uh yeah trapping trapping is a possibility shooting is a possibility using some sort of poison bait not a possibility Mm -hmm. not really an option when it comes to rabbits i'd say yeah i know i've certainly heard people and even like downtown portsmouth potentially having issues with rabbits and 
Yeah, you, you really can't be shooting in small suburban uh, and urban properties. No. <laughs> no, in that case, you need to come up with another option. But if you have just a, a small, let's say, suburban, urban property, it's probably more reasonable for you to have a fence around your smaller garden, too. Right. It's it's just more, more reasonable because it, at that scale, it's not such a daunting task. Exactly. You just have so much less to protect and are going to be more invested in protecting that small area. And so moles, when I think of moles, I think of them as being in some ways misunderstood. <laughs> uh, there, there are some persistent myths, I think, when it comes to moles, maybe more than any of these animals. One thing is that people associate mole feeding with a grub infestation. And my understanding is that may or may not uh, be be the case. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that I think of is mole damage looking worse than it is. Uh, so I think in, in many cases, moles might be something that you might choose not to control. Absolutely right on both counts. Mole damage usually does look much worse than it is. The damage that you're seeing is just from the tunnels that moles are digging in the soils. So they're as they as they burrow, they're pushing soil up. I have to say, I usually only really notice mole activity in the spring. You sometimes see it in the summer, but once that turf grass and everything is, is really coming in strong, I don't notice the tunneling so much. And in terms of grubs, because yes, moles are often associated with a high grub population. Uh, the thing about moles is that they will eat really any sort of soil insect arthropod. So that that could mean grubs. They will absolutely eat grubs, but they're also probably eating a lot of earthworms or maybe some other type of beetle larva or, or something that's not associated with, you know, or hurting your grass in any way. So just because moles are around does not mean you have a high grub population. You might have a lot of earthworms. The other thing about moles too is that they tend to be most active in areas with a really rich, moist soil. You know, places where I've noticed most of the damage, it's where the soil tends to be on the wetter side. And that could be because that's where more of, let's say, the earthworms are hanging out. You rarely see them in a like a real rough, rocky soil. It's, you're just not likely to find them in that sort of spot. But usually I don't know that control is, is really something you need to be thinking about. It can be upsetting if you're really into lawns to see those tunnels. But just walking over top of those or, or tamping them down with a rake and raking them out is often all you need to do. And the grass is going to be totally fine. That tunnel that the mole made may actually help the grass by helping aerate the soil a little bit. I like that. And uh, the other thing, maybe the, the third myth I, I would bring up with moles is just all the products out there that are advertised for deterring them. And that's so often what we hear when people are asking for wildlife advice is, how do I deter this animal? Uh, so there are products containing ingredients like castor oil. There are uh, sound deterrents, right? So what do you make of some of those? Uh, is there anything out there that's actually worth purchasing? With those things, I would say just save your money. The one that comes to mind for me right off the bat, and th these are often marketed for voles too, are these ultrasonic devices, which you know, vibrate the soil a little bit, make this high-pitched noise that is supposed to scare the animals away. I've never seen these work very well. They're kind of expensive. 
they don't really seem to bother the animals whatsoever. So I, I wouldn't bother with those. By the same right, I wouldn't really bother with buying any sort of uh, repellent for moles. Castor oil, maybe, but there isn't really any strong evidence to suggest that that actually works. And if you are going to control moles, my understanding, there's pretty much one strategy, which is lethal trapping. And there are various types of traps. Uh, they, they all essentially involve positioning them at the entrance or exit. Yeah, really the exit of active tunnels. Uh, they're, I think, kind of gruesome <laughs> with names like scissor trap or um, harpoon style, right? A harpoon, you know, where the, you're, you're impaling the animal. Uh, but it, it's an option. It is considered humane because it's a very quick death. But if if I feel the need to control moles, that is the tool that I would look at. Yeah, and the, the caveat with those, too, is that they can be kind of pricey and a little bit difficult to use to set appropriately and to put in the right spot. And just like with other wildlife, if you have prime habitat for moles, if you have really good soil in your lawn, another mole is probably going to move in to take its place. Well, I guess at least you've already spent the money on the trap and we'll get some use out of it, right? <laughs> I guess so. We we can spend just a, a couple minutes on birds. Uh, w when I think of birds as pests, uh, I think of turkeys uh, as being kind of a, a bizarre, uh, but sometimes really a nuisance pest um, and and then some animals that will go after maybe the corn in in your garden um, or the fruits on your on your berry bushes something like that so so what birds come to mind for you and and are you basically just looking at netting for all those like I guess with the exception of turkeys yeah turkeys with turkeys I think they do two things sometimes they'll scratch up or pull up young seedlings or they will actually damage uh produce. So they'll go after fruits, let's say. Uh, I believe I was told that um, turkeys can be real issues for people growing grapes because the turkeys are going after the fruits. With those, you know, maybe fencing, keeping in mind that they can fly. If you have a dog around, that might actually be a better deterrent for turkeys. With other birds, you know, a lot of times we're most concerned with birds on on berry bushes, like you mentioned, so blueberries. So any any type of bird that eats fruits, let's say robins for example yeah um having some sort of netting over top of the fruit can be really helpful so that the birds are excluded from that fruit and you're able to harvest some another type of bird that i think is worth mentioning too are woodpeckers um, particularly the yellow-bellied sapsucker which will often drill holes in very small little holes in landscape plants and fruit trees this you know i guess you could say is more of a nuisance it doesn't actually typically harm trees so if you see little horizontal rows of holes on your apple tree or something, um, don't worry too much. That's just a evidence of a sapsucker in your area. Yeah, people always think those are borers. People always suspect borers. Every every issue is is a borer, right? That's I can't I can't tell you how many times I hear that, and it, it it's not from a borer. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah, often the, if you're seeing very uh, linear horizontal lines of holes in a in a tree, it was probably a sapsucker. It's it's not a borer. Insects don't tend to be quite that. Uh, I don't know, organized. I guess. Mm, yeah, that some. Sometimes they'll talk about a grid work. Um, yeah, and with turkeys, I mean, something they love are uh, bare pieces of dirt so they can take the, those 
those uh, mud baths or dirt baths or uh, that they seem to love so much. I, I actually just saw some turkeys doing that yesterday on a on a poorly seeded hillside. And and so using mulch, uh, you know, in your garden to deny them those opportunities may be at least somewhat helpful. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I wasn't actually thinking along those lines, but yeah, you're right. That is turkeys. If you, if you have, let's say, a vegetable garden with nothing covering the soil, they might just be going there for a, a dust bath. Yeah, and kind of damaging your garden in the process. We've talked about deer, I think, quite a bit uh, earlier in the podcast, but I I would just bring up the fencing. Uh, the fact that deer are incredible athletes. And if they want to, they can leap over fencing unless it's what? Do we, do we recommend eight feet? Yeah. If you are just going to have a single fence, deer can jump well over six feet, six feet high. So having that fence be, you know, eight feet or so is going to be ideal. I guess one trick with deer is that they can't jump both high and far. So some people will do a double fence. So you'll have a couple of short fences. Um, let's say, you know, four or five feet that are spaced probably the same distance, five feet or so apart, maybe a little bit more. That That's taking up more room. So I probably wouldn't go that route. Deer fencing material, it could be, you know, wooden slats. It could be iron bars. It could be more of a, uh, a see-through plastic mesh, which I think is what a lot of people go for for vegetable garden. Or it can be electric fence too. And I've even had some people tell me, I've never tried this, but that they've had good luck keeping deer out just by stretching a monofilament line around their garden. So a fishing line essentially between posts. And when the deer runs into that, it spooks them, you know, because they don't see that line. I don't know. I mean, I think I could see that working if there's only one deer that hangs out in your area. I mean, the other the, the other chance, too, right, is that the deer is just going to get spooked and run through the fence and pull that down and then be in your garden area. But I, I guess I just don't necessarily think of deer as problem solvers. They're very easily frightened. And, and so with electric fencing, they could jump over it. But if you bait the electric fence and they have that experience with it, I think the, the research generally says uh, they're not going to that next level of jumping over. They're just skipping town. Yeah. So by baiting it, you mean you're actually putting some peanut butter or something on that fence. So they're getting a good zap and, and staying away. And of course, you know, with electric fencing too, these are sublethal doses of electricity, right? And so I, if a fence for a deer, let's say, or any of these animals, I don't think there's really much concern at all for, for harm to you, for certainly harm to the wildlife or to, to pets or your kids. Certainly it's unpleasant, to get zapped by that fence, but it's it's not actually terribly harmful. You know, it's just the sort of thing where you don't want it to happen again. And there are also some other animals that might not come to mind as far as the, the biggest culprits of garden damage, but maybe are worth at least quickly bringing up. Uh, skunks, you know, either digging in the lawn or, or maybe hanging out under your shed right? Something like that. Can raccoons potentially be a pest on on occasion? They can, yeah. They'll go after, they're omnivores, so they'll go after some garden produce. And they'll also sometimes go after, if you do have a grub issue, go after grubs in the lawn. And I guess I would argue, and maybe you would push back, um, but I'd say snakes are not at all a garden pest and really not something that should be controlled generally, especially in New Hampshire. We uh, where we only have one venomous snake and they're highly endangered. You're very unlikely to to come across them. So besides that, talking about uh, 
additions to your garden that are offering pest control. Yeah, snakes, I, I know that they can be startling and they, they they scare a lot of people, but snakes are good guys in the garden. And if you find a timber rattlesnake in your garden, then you are one incredibly lucky person. It's just not going to happen. And I have seen uh, repellents for snakes before, but as far as I'm concerned, that's just snake oil. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> and, and I guess the possum is another animal that uh, could could potentially be under the shed. Generally, with animals under sheds, we're encouraging just kind of use of hardware cloth uh, ar- around the edge of that to exclude them from getting under there. Maybe something that they can exit but not enter uh, if, if you're trying to, to get them out of there. It's something like that, but that's kind of a, a, a unique issue. Anything else come to mind for you? Certainly bears can be an issue, too, if you're somebody who, like we mentioned earlier, is keeping chickens or if you're keeping beehives. Right. A, a bear might get into your garden, too. You might go after some, some corn or something like that. In general, you know, most people, unless you have a beehive or something like that, you're, you're not worrying about having a fence to keep bears out of your garden. Okay, so what do you consider to be the best resources for people? We've gone over a lot of information, but there is a lot more information that we just don't have time to talk about. Uh, So if people want to problem solve around a specific issue they're dealing with, where where do you send people? Uh, First and foremost, I definitely send people to USDA Wildlife Services, which I mentioned earlier. Um, And their phone number, too, is is 603-223-6832. There's also a lot of great wildlife information on the New Hampshire Fish and Game website. And another one of my favorite websites, too, is called wildlifehelp.org. So there's tips there on how to deal with nuisance wildlife, as well as lists of licensed wildlife control officers. So if you need to have somebody come in and help you out with a nuisance wildlife issue, they can help out quite a bit. And we will have the contact information for wildlife services and that website, wildlifehelp.org, in the show notes. Uh, Still with that, why don't we transition to your featured plant, Emma? This episode's featured plant is Inkberry, Ilex glabra. Inkberry is a broadleaf evergreen shrub that is largely ignored by deer and rabbits. Inkberry is native to eastern North America, and it's actually considered endangered in the wild in New Hampshire. It is, however, common in garden and landscape settings, and it's often planted for its attractive, glossy, dark green leaves and pea-sized, shiny black fruits that attract birds. Speaking of fruit, Inkberry is actually a species of holly, and like its close cousins Winterberry and Meserve holly, you'll need to plant both male and female shrubs if you're hoping for fruit production. Inkberry grows well in a variety of conditions and is hardy to zone 4. While it prefers rich, consistently moist soils and full sun, it can tolerate shade and is somewhat drought tolerant. So if you're looking for an evergreen shrub for screening or hedging that is unlikely to be damaged by wildlife, Inkberry could be your plant. Now for one final tip. If you use plastic spiral tree guards or tubes to protect young trees from voles or mice, make sure to remove these in mid to late spring. 
there is evidence that insect pests such as apple bark borers, dogwood borers, leopard moths, and possibly round-headed apple tree borers seem to prefer trees with wraparound plastic guards. These guards also leave the underlying bark tender and it hardens off slowly. Thus, these guards should be removed in the spring and put back in place in the fall. Perhaps a better solution yet is to make your own guards out of galvanized hardware cloth. These guards can be left in place year-round for years on end. Well, that's going to do it for today's show on Nuisance Wildlife, the 10th episode of Granite State Gardening. If you've made it all the way through this episode, we're guessing that means you're appreciating this podcast. If you have a few spare minutes, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review where you're listening and include why you would recommend it to fellow gardeners. Email us at gsg.pod at unh.edu with lingering questions feedback on the podcast, and suggestions for future episodes. We plan to continue featuring real listener questions on those episodes, so don't hold back. Let us know how we can help. Until next time, keep those critters away from your plantings, Granite State Gardeners. We'll be back in two weeks to talk sustainable and beautiful annual and perennial gardens. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.